Um, you know, as David Geringer and Mike said, our prayer is that you experience God's grace and his joy and his mercy yesterday, his goodness in a very tangible way. And yet at the same time, it's holiday seasons for some are very challenging. Some people are walking through things that they'd rather not walk through. Some people are experiencing things that they would rather not experience. And so when the idea of Christmas comes, it's almost fear. And my prayer is that this morning, for those in particular, you are encouraged. This is a passage that seems to be out of place with the season. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ, and then somehow two days later, one day later, we jump into Zechariah 11. And you say, how is that possible? Um, And from an initial read... And even if you read it 10, 20 times, you probably think the same thing. And if you've been going through a difficult season and have read ahead and you have fear and you wonder how this is going to encourage you, I just ask you to be patient. This is for you. And for those of us who are not going through a difficult season, it is also for you. And so my prayer is that I can make sense of this passage and connect it to what we face today. Because this passage uniquely places Christ at the center of our focus. It brings to life in a real, tangible, practical, visible way the difference between earthly leaders and the one true shepherd. And this morning, as we focus on shepherds, which so often brings to mind Christmas, this idea that shepherds are in a field doing their job and an angel appears in the glory, as Mike described on Friday erupts around them. This morning is not about that type of visibility. It's about visibility in a way that you would not expect. And so to ensure we're all on the same page, because I can't expect that while we encourage you often to read ahead that everybody did, some of you are saying, Zechariah 11, I have no idea what that is. I'm going to read it for you. And then you'll understand why I started the way I started. So Zechariah 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. 
The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer pity Have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord, because I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staves, one I named favor and the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Well, that's pleasant. That's quite the Christmas message. By God's grace, it's not Christmas morning. This morning, we're going to focus on shepherds. We're going to uncover shepherdly wisdom. But in particular, we're going to uncover three reactions, different reactions, related to the types of leaders we choose to follow. And so from the outset, the first reaction that we see is disappointment. Depending on the shepherds we choose to follow, the first reaction we will experience is disappointment. See, it's the inevitable consequence of placing our ultimate hope or our trust in earthly leaders. See, the idea of desiring earthly leaders is not new. You guys remember back in 1 Samuel, God was the king, right, of Israel. 
And the Israelites said, I don't want God as my king. I want to be like everyone else. We want to be like everyone else. We want an earthly king. And so God says, I will raise up an earthly king because they have rejected me as their king. And God, through Samuel, gave them Saul. Most of you know how that turned out. If not, I'd encourage you to go back and start in 1 Samuel and read through 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel and read through Kings and just read through the rest of the Old Testament because that's kind of the account of what happened as a result of people rejecting God as their king. But it was God's plan. See, it doesn't mean that desiring earthly leaders is entirely wrong. It means that we're to be aware of who we follow, who we seek to place our trust in, who we seek to lead us. See, we need to maintain a right perspective, not tie our hope to those who reject the Lord. But earthly leaders will always disappoint, always. See, these first three verses are understood to be a prophecy. And many believe that these first three verses were in fact fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. And whether you agree with that perspective or not means little. Because the details of how it was fulfilled doesn't change the principle behind the prophecy. See, earthly shepherds, earthly leaders who depend on their own strength and do not look to the Lord as their sustaining grace will eventually fall. They'll fail. Did you hear the reference to the trees, three particular trees in the first three verses? And it says that they have, in a sense, fallen. Well, question for you. What happens when trees fall? Now, some in the back of their mind are going, that old question, well, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, guys, really? <laughs> like, my mind goes there, so maybe it's just me. And the fact that you're laughing, everybody was there. But see, given what occurred here in Colorado Springs last week, This congregation is acutely aware of what happens when trees fall over. Whatever is connected to the root of the tree, when it falls, or whatever is in the path of the tree as it falls, is destroyed. Up north in the Briargate area where we live, carnage still remains. We went for a walk yesterday, and I stopped counting after about 35 trees that were down. There's a place where this massive tree has fallen over, and eight feet of 10-foot timbers, these massive railroad ties connected in a pl- are up and standing basically 14 feet in the air, connected to the roots. So you think about the work it took to put those things in, and I mean, it was, they're like toothpicks, just up. 
concrete up. There's a place by my work where the concrete is up and the water mains are exposed because whatever is attached to it is destroyed. In the passage, there's three types of trees, cedar, cypress, and oak. Jeremiah and Zechariah, if you go to Jeremiah, you can see it, but in Zechariah as well, says they are destroyed. Contextually, he's saying leaders fall. And as a result of their falling, friends, they're not just crying out. There's a very particular word that is used here, and it says they are wailing. See, wailing is a guttural mourning. A wail isn't something that you think about and say, huh, I need to be discouraged or disappointed right now. It's something that happens when something occurs to you. It's involuntary, and it's generally made in response to either when we're really afraid or when we've experienced great So here it says the leaders have fallen and the result is involuntarily their wailing. You might say why. Look at verse 3. It says the earthly shepherds are wailing because their glory is ruined. See, they're despairing because everything they've placed their trust in is gone. They've lost hope because the place they've placed their trust and their confidence is no more. See, glory here literally means garment. And it was used in Jonah 3.6 to describe the royal vestments of a king that signified dignity and power. So in the context, these earthly shepherds, these leaders who have placed their confidence in their position or their wealth or their own strength, their glory, their vestments have been stripped from them. They who saw themselves as wise and clever and innovative rather than relying on the Lord the true shepherd of Israel, are wailing. Earthly leaders always miss the mark. Always. They always fall short. It doesn't matter if you're considering politics or spirituality or education or business or even friends within your own family. Earthly leaders always miss the mark. They'll always fall short. And what is our response? We will be disappointed. If we place our hope, our confidence, our faith, our trust in an earthly leader, we will always be disappointed.
young people, your parents will always disappoint you. Parents are sitting here going, I know. We know where we've fallen short. And we wish we could change it. Church, your elders will disappoint you. And speaking on behalf of the elders, we are fully aware of where we've missed the mark. And we wish we could change it. Friends, government will disappoint you. You can insert anything in there. Any human institution will disappoint. Why? Because earthly leaders are incapable of perfectly representing and reflecting the glory of God. Sadly, we are prone, we often seek our own glory, often without even knowing it, which is why it talks about wailing. It's a guttural response, something that they placed their trust, their hope, their confidence in is stripped away, and they didn't even know it was there, and they wail. Have you ever lost something that you thought you deserved, and you got to that point? But then in hindsight, you say, why did I respond that way? Your hope and your confidence was in something earthly rather than in the Lord. See, what's incredible about these three verses is that we're given a clear example of why we need a greater shepherd. We need one who is free from sin and selfishness. And friends, there's only one shepherd who meets that criteria, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, that's why Paul encourages the church to follow him as he follows Jesus. He recognizes even his own propensity, and he encourages believers to evaluate his leadership according to the one true shepherd. So here's the shepherdly wisdom from these three verses. Be aware. Are the leaders you're choosing to follow accountable to someone, to someone's? Are they transparent of their own sin, their own inadequacy, their own need of a savior? When you listen to people who are leaders speak publicly, is it everybody else's fault? Or do they assume responsibility for themselves? See, acknowledge your own tendency to place your hope in earthly shepherds. That's okay, but only do so to the degree that they follow Christ. And then recognize your own tendency to place confidence in your own ability as a leader and as a shepherd. And look to the good shepherd as your source of strength and confidence and hope. When you do that, you won't be disappointed. But there's a second result that we see in this passage or a second response. When we follow earthly leaders as the source of hope, 
And it's actually revealed at the end of the passage, verses 15 through 17. See, what happens when we place our trust in earthly leaders? No, not only are we disappointed, but we will experience destruction. Let me read that passage again. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and let his right eye be utterly blinded. See, God commands Zechariah to portray an evil, foolish Shepherd. You guys think, really? Like, why? See, foolish in verse 15 denotes one who is morally corrupt. And as a result of being morally corrupt, in verse 16, we, re- we see that this foolish shepherd refuses to care for the sheep. It does, he doesn't pursue pursue the sheep when they wander away. He doesn't lend, tend to their wounds when they're hurt. In fact, it says at the end of verse 16 that his sole purpose is precisely the opposite of what a shepherd is supposed to do. It says that his purpose is to devour them even to the point of tearing off their hooves. Now that's a real cheerful thought for following someone who's an earthly shepherd. (laughs) Utter destruction. Now, some may be sitting here thinking, why are you being overly dramatic about the whole destruction thing? I'm not. (laughs) If you think it's overly dramatic, take it up with God and take it up with Zechariah. I'm just bringing it forth the way it says. See, the language is bold. But because the language is so bold, this is what you need to make sure you don't miss. The prophet is not talking about shepherds who have on occasion failed to lead well. Or communicate well, or care well, or counsel well. The prophet is condemning shepherds who intentionally and willfully not only neglect care, but purpose to devour the flock. They purposefully take advantage of those entrusted to their care. They hurt others for their own benefit. Sadly, you don't have to search very hard to find stories or accounts of leaders who have abused those entrusted to their care in this way. I'm aware that there are some here who have experienced it themselves. And as I considered this week, my heart hurts for those 
who are either going through that somewhere potentially not here, somewhere that's listening to this. My heart hurt for those that I know who have walked through that. And I wish I could take it away. But I can't. But the Lord promises to care for His people. He promises to administer justice. He makes it clear in verse 17 that in the end, worthless shepherds are rendered useless. They will be destroyed. Look at verse 17. It's referring to the day when Christ returns. It says that the sword will strike their arms, representing their earthly strength, and their eyes, speaking of their intelligence. They're going to be rendered useless, right? Arms, wholly withered as a result of it. Eyes, fully blinded. Ultimately, we see in Revelation 19, it says that the true shepherd will triumph over the worthless, worthless shepherds. This is the promise. So you can't take this out of context of the rest of Scripture. See, while we may encounter and even be called to endure such injustice that's described here, the Lord ultimately makes things right. And he's saying, yes, you will be disappointed. And yes, you will experience destruction as those shepherds fall. But sandwiched in the middle of this, verses 4 through 14, there's actually a third reaction to leadership that's described in Scripture. And it's amazement. See, when we follow leaders who pursue and reflect the Lord Jesus, we will be blessed and we will be amazed. Now, without the reference point of Jesus Christ, without the coming of the Christ child that we just celebrated, without that as something we can look to, this passage is really, really hard to understand. Look at verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. God is calling Zach to be a living picture of the coming Messiah. We get to see the beauty of the true shepherd in the middle of these two undesirable reactions and realities. And that's why without understanding that this passage is pointing to Jesus, it's nearly impossible to make any sense of it. Because from Scripture, from the rest of Scripture, we know that Jesus is God's good, wise, yet forsaken shepherd. 1 Peter 5 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Well, Jesus himself identified as the shepherd. In John 10, we see, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That sounds very different to what we read here this morning. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And in Hebrews, it says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. So with that in mind, with the frame of reference that the person, the shepherd that he's speaking about is the Lord Jesus, this is the foreshadowing of Christ to come. Look at what Zechariah does as he steps into this role. In verse seven, it says, so I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staves. What's a staff? Now, I know for a long time, I always thought that a staff was simply something that people use kind of like a walking stick. Like you're standing for a long time, you can kind of grab onto it, you can lean, but that's not necessarily the case. It can be used for that. But a staff is actually used to guide the flock. A staff is used to correct the flock when necessary. But sheep aren't the brightest animals in the world. And more often than not, a staff is used to rescue the sheep. And Zechariah doesn't just take one staff. He takes two. And one of them he calls favor, and the other one he calls union. Well, favor is God's blessing. It's the joy of the Lord. It's His promises to His people. It's favor. Union speaks to the connection, first of all in here, between God and His people. But then it's also identified that union in here is actually speaking about the connection between the people of God themselves, Israel and Judah. And so it says that he takes these two staves. So he's going to lead, he's going to use things that are designed to guide, to correct, to rescue with favor and with union. And in one month, it says he destroyed the other three shepherds. In one month. Well, who are the three shepherds he's talking about? Well, historically, there are more than 40 interpretations of who these three things are. <laughs> and some are thinking, is it Mo, Larry, and Curly? I was hoping so because it'd be a whole lot easier, but it's not. See, in the context of the passage, with Zechariah representing being called to be the actual manifestation, this precursor to the one true shepherd, what might he be referring to, especially considering that at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about three trees that had fallen. And so the understanding that seems to make the most sense to me is actually one of the oldest on record. And it's that these three shepherds represent the three classes of leaders that God had provided to Israel. Prophets, priests, and kings.
See, every shepherd up to this point in history and every shepherd that would come apart from the Lord Jesus after this point in history either had failed miserably or would fail miserably. So if you think back to Chronicles and Judges, the kings of Israel turned away from the living God and began to worship idols. Priests were no better. They ceased living holy, obedient lives to the Father and actually abused the people of Israel. And prophets also had their failures. Now, my mind first went to Jonah because it's the most tangible, right? I'm not going to listen. I'm going to run the other way. But if you just look at the history of the prophets in general, it's not just the single prophet who failed, but as a whole. At some point, prophets stopped serving as God's spokesman and began saying things in an effort to please men. And friends, I would be remiss to say that even today, there are those that serve as pastors who have stopped serving as God's spokesman and say things in an effort to please men. And by understanding that this in the context of Jesus once the Messiah came and his earthly ministry began, think how quickly he dismantled all the inadequate shepherds and restored the true role of shepherd. His ministry starts, and all of a sudden, those who had their glory, those who had their power, start wailing because this other guy, this lowly infant, this lowly shepherd, right? Huh. Christ came and ruled over God's people. And when he was here, did he not demonstrate favor and union? See, as the only true and wise shepherd, he quickly replaced the earthly shepherds when he walked here. And I'd be saying, okay, so I'm trying to connect the dots. I don't know about you, speaking for myself, around Christmas, I think of the Christ child, and I often think about what he came to do, and what he did while he was here, not necessarily why he came. I mean, the songs we sing that there's this baby who came to do a variety of things. Walk on water, give sight to the blind, calm the storm. Those are things he did. Those are amazing things. But was it those things that caused the earthly shepherds of the day to reject him? No. The things that he came to do, the reason he came that caused the shepherds of the day to reject him is when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, who has the authority to forgive sins other than God? 
That's what all the hubbub was about. It wasn't the fact that he told him to pick up his mat and walk. It wasn't the fact that he healed the leper. Those caused people to come and look, right? But it was the fact that he forgave sin. Mike did an excellent job Friday reminding us that Jesus came to save us. He came to redeem us. He came to die for us. So as I'm reading through this, I kept asking the Lord, Lord, why would you ordain it that I will be speaking and I will bringing forth a message about people rejecting the one true shepherd? But as I've been preparing, I've come to realize that there's no more appropriate time than today. Because this passage places the beauty and the uniqueness of the one true shepherd on display perfectly. See, he is God's Messiah. As the good shepherd, he came to seek out and pursue and save sinners, to redeem the lost. He came as a substitute, which is entirely different than the shepherds who reject the He's wholly unlike the worthless shepherds that we previously learned about. He cares like no other. He loves like no other. He pursues like no other. He guides no like no other. He heals like no other. And the list goes on. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi wrote, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, that baby that we sing about. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, we are to be amazed. That's the third response in this passage. Is be amazed not by the earthly shepherds, not by those who do not follow, those who reject, but be amazed by the one true shepherd who is unlike any other. And as followers of Jesus, on account of the one true, good, perfect shepherd, we are then free to live different from the rest of the world. We're free to love different from the rest of the world and serve and care and forgive and lead and give and teach and sing and adore different than the rest of the world does. See, because he came, we can live differently. Friends, we're called to believe because he came. He lived obediently to the Father. He suffered a punishment he didn't deserve. But we're called to believe. We're called to repent because he came. See, it's in repenting that we demonstrate and communicate that His atoning work is applied to our hearts. It's as we repent that 
we are no longer guilty and therefore we desire to turn from our sin and live differently. And if you haven't done it, do it. We're called to obey. Because unlike this shepherd, who came to destroy. Jesus is a shepherd who came to die and be destroyed himself. And we can fully rest in that work of being destroyed that gives us the strength to obey. See, our obedience follows trusting in him. It's not the requisite for trusting in him. Now, left to ourselves, we would respond just as the people of Israel responded in this passage. Look at the last part of verse 8. It said, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Just as the people of Israel rejected Zechariah when Jesus came to reign and rule over God's people, they rejected him. Friends, Jesus is a beautiful Savior. He's the one true shepherd, so be amazed because he is God. Why might we reject the shepherd? I have some thoughts on that. Number one. We like control. We desire control. Many refuse to admit it, but we are reticent to give up control over our lives. See, often we don't want to submit to Him, but just because we desire control and don't want to give it up, it doesn't stop Him from being God. Though they rejected him as God, Jesus is the great I am. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. And so I encourage you to be amazed and cherish Jesus as God. And set aside your desire for control. Second reason. While Jesus' teaching is true and distinctly different from the world, I think we find it easy to get bored with him in his word. We've read through the Bible. I've learned all I can learn. To some, Jesus seems outdated or irrelevant or potentially impersonal. We desire new things, something fresh. And while Jesus promises to give his followers a new heart, those who fail to see him as Lord actually prefer the empty promises of this world to satisfy. And that takes them back to the first two things. They're disappointed and they're destroyed. Don't fall into the trap, brothers, sisters. I encourage you to be 
amazed and to seek him with all your heart. Don't think you've got it all together. Don't lean on your own understanding. His wisdom's perfect. Third reason, we live in a world that prefers sensuality and chaos and strife that naturally rejects him. We live in a culture that continually and ever increasingly mocks his name and his ways. I think some are hesitant to identify as his follower because we would be considered or characterized as different. An older term, prude, morally fanatical. I think you're over the top. But see, I encourage you to be amazed this morning when you look at this passage and see the distinct difference to purify his purity of thought and action despite the natural temptation you face from the world. The fourth reason. As the one true shepherd, his ways are opposed to our natural pride. See, it's true that many refused to follow him while he walked on this earth. Why? He encouraged them to die to self. To see others as more important than themselves. And the focus on the condition of their hearts rather than blindly following a set of rules and norms and outward actions that they can measure themselves against other people with. And see, I encourage you to be amazed and humbly seek to rest in His work as your source of value. Why is it important to pursue Him? Why is it important to submit to Him? Because according to the passage, this wise shepherd, when he was rejected, took the staff called favor and broke it. And then he did the same to the staff called union. The people who reject him are left wandering without a good and wise shepherd. There's no longer a shepherd's crook to rescue. There's no longer a shepherd's crook to guide. They're left alone. And after destroying the two staves, effectively stepping down as their shepherd, Zach requests to be compensated for his work. Hey, Lord. Hey, guys, I did what you asked me to do. Pay me. I'm reading this going, really? <laughs> like, this makes no sense. And in light of knowing the events surrounding Jesus' death, the way this plays out is fascinating. It says that the people weighed the wages due to Zechariah at 30 pieces of silver. Why 30? Yes, it's the same that Judas was paid by the Pharisees for betraying Jesus. But friends, 
there's another reference that's even more important to understand. Back in Exodus 21, we find that the same amount of silver is what was given to a slave who was no longer able to work on account of being injured. The slave was worthless. See, in Zechariah, the people have been given a shepherd who's wise and ruled over them with love, foreshadowing the Lord Jesus. But their response stated this, you're worthless to us, and the only gratitude we'll give is the same that we would provide for a worthless slave. That's what was fulfilled in the life of Jesus when Judas betrayed him. Christ came to earth as God's one true good wise shepherd and the people rejected him saying you're worthless to us. We choose to do things our own way. And so what do we see here? Well, if the result of that rejection is that favor and union are broken and you're left alone, it would seem that he is in fact the shepherd that we need most. Our nature is to live for self. Our nature is to reject the despised one to whom all glory is due. And it says that if we reject him, Matthew in chapter 23 says he will reject us. Union's broken and favor's broken. When we refuse to follow the Lord as our shepherd, we will follow someone or something else, and it will always lead to either disappointment or destruction or both. Now, yesterday was Christmas, and I imagine that many celebrated in a way where gifts of some type were exchanged. You know, you, you see on social media, a friend of mine, their entire household theme was homemade gifts. And I tell you, I have never seen such exquisite woodworking given to other people. It's amazing. But in the gift-giving experience, there are two roles, are there not? You have a gift giver and you have a gift receiver, Right? And if you, you think about that experience, as a gift giver, there may have been times that you have waited to give a gift, a particular gift till the very end, right? Because it's the most meaningful for you to give. You waited with anticipation as the person to whom you gave the gift, the gift receiver, unwraps the packaging. And in some cases, maybe they tear it apart and they scream, thank you. And then there's some who have less emotion and it's carefully opened. But as they open it, you see the tears fill their eyes as they open something that was meaningful to them. But with many gifts, we can quickly forget who gave them to us or maybe they were even a gift at all. 
Clothes can quickly just become part of the normal wardrobe. Somehow they jumped into the drawer of the closet and they're there. But there may be a gift or two over your life that still brings back that same sense of awe and excitement. I have a number of those. And even as I was thinking about those during preparing the message, my eyes fill with tears. Both that I've received and those that I've given. Now imagine you're the gift giver. And you wait till the very end to hand a gift receiver this gift. And they open it. And their response is not elation. Their response is not tears. It's no thanks. I don't want that. In fact, I want nothing to do with that. For those who have been a gift giver who knows what it's like to wait till the end, I know your heart right now. You sense that feeling of being rejected. And that's hard. But you also know what it's like to have put everything into a gift. And that gift is never used or cherished. And it sits there. This morning, we are called to accept and cherish and revel and glory and rejoice in the greatest gift of all time. God waited until the right time to give us a gift. And he wrapped it special for us. It looked just like us. I love watching young people at the mall. As they're walking down the mall, they're looking at themselves in the window <laughs> because they love looking at themselves. <laughs> God knew that the best way for him to give us a gift was to give us a gift that looked just like us. A gift that would experience life just like we experienced, but do it wholly differently. See, he sent his son, the one true shepherd, to serve, not to be served. The trees that had fallen desired to be served. They live for self. The shepherds who are considered worthless, foolish at the end of the passage live for self. And he lived his life as a ransom for those deserving to be punished. I pray that this passage, as you read through it, as you consider it, helps you see the distinct difference between Jesus and every other earthly leader.
that you are willing not only to place your faith and your confidence in him, but that you're going to cherish it. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to use that gift day in, day out. That's why he came, friends. He didn't come so it was a one-time thing that, okay, yeah, I got it. Now I can go on with the rest of my life. Because he knows that the more we live like him, what do we get to experience? Favor and union. The two ways that he leads is he gives us his joy. He gives us his love. And we are more and more in communion with Him and in communion with one another. That's what comes with the result of cherishing the shepherd. Friends, unlike the earthly shepherds, the one true shepherd will not disappoint. And it's not that He will not destroy. Think of this difference. He removed destruction. We deserved destruction. We deserve to be rendered useless. We deserve eternal punishment. And he said, I'm going to take that on your behalf so you never experience it. That's amazing. So friends... That third response, that third result that we see in this passage is that we are to be amazed for what a Savior we have. The one true shepherd who cares for his flock, who leads with both favor and union, who came for us, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Friends, let us rejoice and adore him for the Savior that he is. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the depth of your love for us, for your children, those who naturally reject you, those who naturally resist your love, your direction. Lord, we need you. We need your help to cherish you, not to forget, not to set aside, not to be enticed by our own earthly desires. We need you. Thank you for the gift. Help us to rejoice in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.